Hello. Welcome to another VW podcast. This is Office Hours, and this is our recut of the Preparing for Funding series. I'm Kevin. I'm Rat. And we're going to do another seven episodes on preparing for funding. So this is something that we did about five years ago, where we broke down the key steps to preparing your company for funding. So we're recutting the preparing for funding series. Rad and I thought it'd be a great idea to redo this because there've been a lot of updates, updates in the actual law, updates in venture trends. And we've got some great information that we can share with you guys on getting your company ready. So we're going to do this over seven episodes. The first one we're going to talk about today is incorporation. Episode two will cover founders agreements. Episode three will cover friends and family funding. And Rad and I have some good perspectives on that after having done some pitch competitions around the world. Episode four will be pitch decks. Episode five will be finding your sophisticated investors, maybe your angel investors. Episode six will cover our love-hate relationship with accelerators and incubators. And then episode seven will be our seed round, which is what we're working towards here. So we're working towards getting your company ready for a seed round. So let's dive into the first episode here, which is incorporation. So Radney, when a client calls us, calls you and says, hey, I need help. I'm going to start up my company. Thinking about an LLC or a corporation. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, Kev, that's a great question. And typically, I start asking the client questions, right? The initial thing is, what type of company is this, right? Because how they answer that question really determines which organizational structure makes the most sense for them. So for example, if I say, are you looking to scale this? Are you looking to talk to investors? If the answer to that is yes, we know where that goes, right? A typical Delaware C-Corp. We say, hey, if you want to shoot down the fairway, do what's kind of most standard so that most investors that are typically in this space understand the docs you have and are familiar with it, well, then let's go in that direction. But they say, hey, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to raise money. I'm more of a services company, more of a lifestyle company. Then oftentimes I guide them towards the LLC. You know, Rad, I think that asking questions is the right way to go. You remember Doogie Hauser? <laughs> I do. I do remember Doogie. So I know we're probably ostracizing a lot of our- Yeah, we just lost 90% of the listeners. But do you remember how Doogie Hauser ended every episode? No, I do not. I didn't watch it nearly enough. It was him in front of a computer. Oh, yeah. And you'd be like- Remember? It was like his diary, right? Mm-hmm. And he always had some pointed thought for the 17-year-old wonder kid doctor. He had some pointed thought about relationships or life or whatnot. And so I- <laughs> When we get these calls, we get them a lot. I mean, I probably do you know, several calls a week. I know you do too. We get all kinds of new businesses coming our way. And it's a ton of fun. It's one of the things that I really love the most about our jobs is all the new businesses that we get to see. But I always ask them, tell me about your business. And I feel like that's my Doogie Hauser. Like he ended every episode with his little computer diary. <laughs> when I say, tell me about your business, it, to me, that's that's just a microcosm of what we do here. Because someone has to tell us about their business and then we're going to guide them. Right, We're going to guide them from the first step, which is incorporation, and then we're going to hopefully help them to build that business. And most of our clients are trying to scale. Well, let's let's dive in on that because you use that word scale. Let's start with LLCs, Radney, because I think that's an easier transition than into corporations. LLCs are generally better for small businesses. Most businesses need some sort of money to get going, but perhaps you're going to raise money for, you're going to borrow some money from a bank. You know, a lot of small businesses borrow money from banks. SBA loans are great for that. Or you're going to get a seed investment from your friends and family or someone in your network, but then that's it. Then you're not going to continue to raise business. One of the core differences, Rad, that I like to point out between small businesses and startups is small businesses are generally trying to make money, right? Which seems counterintuitive because you would think that all businesses want to make money, but small businesses are trying to make money soon. 
and they have a plan to make money soon, whereas startups, they may or may not, they're going to make money eventually, but they might not be as concerned with that early on. LLCs, people in the tax practice will call them partnerships. You kind of use the blanket term partnerships, refer to LLCs and limited partnerships, but we don't really see limited partnerships done for small businesses anymore. LLCs are kind of the default entity structure there, but they're great for small businesses. They're incredibly flexible. You can make them look like a partnership. You can make them look like an LLC, a corporation. Heck, you can tax an LLC as a corporation if you really wanted to for some reason. The corporate formalities are less. The body of law governing them in Texas, it, you know, the LLC code is a lot less restrictive than the code for corporations. Same thing in Delaware, which are the most common states of, of organization. LLCs are very flexible. The management's a lot easier, not quite as formal as a corporation, but they're not really built to scale. Radney, what are some of your recent clients or some good clients that are LLCs, some small businesses? Like what types of businesses we put in LLCs? Yeah, I would say typically speaking, the companies we put into LLCs are bars and restaurants and services companies, right? CPAs, accounting firms, law firms, any sort of services company like that. And then basically every bar and restaurant you see around the city you live in is most likely an LLC or is a, it could be a corporation, as we've said before, maybe with a S election or it's definitely an LLC taxes a partnership or as, as an S in certain situations. To your point, Kevin, about the flexibility, I walk clients through that and I say, look, if you're not trying to scale, if you're not trying to raise a bunch of money from outside investors and you think this kind of grows by itself, there are tax advantages to LLCs. Now, I always tell people those advantages come with the negatives as well, right? Because LLCs from an administrative standpoint are just more difficult from a taxation standpoint, right? Like your end of the year, your taxes, if you hire a CPA for a small company, has three founders, end of year one, you're a corporation, your taxes are probably like a grand, you know, to have them do the filing. If you're an LLC, taxes a partnership, probably like 2,500. It's a material amount for a really early stage company. Some startups, you know, back in the day, you and I were definitely doing a lot of LLCs as startups, right? As venture-backed companies. And we've got plenty of them that actually got venture money. And there was a time before kind of the IRS came down and said, we're going to keep taxing these just like partnerships and you know they became more cumbersome. There was a little bit of a moment there where that happened. And obviously, private equity might pay millions of dollars to reconvert a corporation in the later years to an LLC when they gain control of it because of the tax advantages. But I do tell people in those early stages, there is a lot of tax advantages, but it can be cumbersome. So you just got to understand that as well. So you made the point about restaurants and bars and services businesses. And if you're going to be a services business, I do agree an LLC is the right structure for you. You probably want an S elections. So you want to visit with a CPA about that. But restaurants, bars, you know, some of the other ones we do, right? Gyms, right? We do a lot of gyms. Those are all LLCs. Retail stores. Small businesses, usually LLC is the right one. You make a good point about the tax consideration because we did do LLCs into startups, you know, many, many years ago. And Brad, you know, one of our best clients, one of the biggest exits we ever represented was a corporation that flipped to an LLC because the tax advantages were so great. But there's a couple of things that I think have happened in the last couple of years that have really pushed all startups into corporation. The first you mentioned, the tax code shifted in 2018. Taxes came down a little bit. So the, actually, we should probably take a step back. We should probably explain something about how these entities are taxed. Corporations suffer from what's known as double taxation. They get taxed twice. And what that means is the corporation pays taxes. And then once there's money left over, it makes dividends to its shareholders. The shareholders then pay taxes on those dividends. So if you're the ultimate owner of the corporation, your money was taxed twice, once at the corporate level, once at the individual level. Those tax rates are different, but it's a lot. The net rate of tax is going to be more than an LLC. LLCs only get taxed once. 
LLCs themselves do not pay taxes. Instead, the taxes are allocated or passed through to the owners, and then the owners pay taxes. So if Rad and I own a corporation 50-50, and our corporation makes $100, well, that corporation is going to pay taxes at the end of the year. So let's call that $30. So now there's $70 left. Now, Rad and I are going to take a distribution or a dividend at the end of the year of $35 each. We're going to pay taxes on that dividend, probably capital gains. If Rad and I own an LLC together, 50-50, and we make $100, then the LLC is not going to pay any taxes. Then Rad and I will each be allocated $50 in income. And at that point in time, we will pay taxes based on our personal tax rates on that $50 in income. The net effect of that is that LLCs generally pay a little bit less, somewhere between 8 and 12% less in taxes than corporations. But that's without any assumptions. And then there's a ton of things that come into play. The most important one is that startups generally don't have profits, right? A lot of startups like, well, I don't want to be suffer from double taxation. Well, you only get taxed if there's profits. So if there's not going to be any profits, then there's not going to be any taxation. So in 2018, they squeezed that corporate tax rate down a little bit closer to the LOC rate. So that's why it just made it easier to go the, the corporate route. And then the other thing, right, when we first started you know, getting into this 10 years ago, what was always on the chopping block was 1202. And I always heard 1202, well, if you're going to make a decision based on 1202 QSBS right now, there's a good chance that that gets chopped in the next tax cuts, next tax regime change. But it hasn't. And 1202 is such a critical tool. If you're not familiar with it, you want to look it up. It's 1202 QSBS. But what this section of the tax code allows, it allows any company that has less than $50 million in gross asset value when it issues its shares, it allows the recipients to receive incredibly favorable tax treatment on their investment. I think for founders, it's up to $10 million tax-free. And then I believe for investors, it's 10x their basis. So think about that, $10 million tax-free to founders if you're getting the shares at day one, or up to 10x your basis for an investor tax-free. The company has to be below a certain threshold before it issues the shares, and there's certain disqualifying events. So it's not the easiest thing, but a lot of startups qualify for it. For those reasons, that 12 is still here, and it survived the Trump era. It survived the first the Biden tax regime, the, the Biden tax changes that went out a couple of years ago. So if it survived all those, survived Obama, and I kept hearing he's going to get chopped as he get chopped. It hasn't been chopped yet. So I think there's good reason to believe that 1202 is going to stay. And that's reason enough to, to push all startups into a corporation. Yeah, I do say this though. I like to not overpromise, right? So one of the things with 1202 is that it only applies in the event of a stock sale, right? If you do an asset sale in the future, you're not going to get that treatment. And so I would say, you know, from our own M&A practice, I would say the majority of the deals that we see are asset deals. Purchasers of companies like to take the assets and leave the, the entity behind. Obviously, that's a negotiated point for those founders, especially if they have QSBS stock to try and make it a stock sale. But that's just something I like to make clear to everyone up front. But to your point, Kevin, when this, the tax rate for corporations dropped down to 21% under Trump, it really made the corporation, the double taxation, not nearly as punitive. And when you think about it, right? Like if your normal tax rate is maybe somewhere between the 37 to 39%, if you're getting passed through on an LLC to you as an income earner, or you just kept it in the corporation and only got taxed 21%, or because a corporation, you probably might be able to write off the kind of income, you know, the LLCs, especially under Trump, if we remember us lawyers with, you know, the pass through entities, we were kind of punished with that tax bill he had where we could no longer write off a lot of the things we used to be able to corporations didn't have that same issue happen to them, right? So it's a lot easier to carry forward losses, right? Correct. In a corporation. 
you make a really good point about the asset sale. But if you have the 1202 at your disposal, you can perhaps use it as a negotiation. Correct. Like you talked about, yep. Rad. So that's probably a little deeper than taxes that we needed to get. But I hope everyone understands that this is an important decision. And so you want to visit with an attorney, you want to visit with a CPA, make sure you're thinking through these considerations. Yeah. And, and Kevin and I are not tax attorneys, just FYI. So yeah, let's, uh, disclaimer. So we have to bring Zach in there. <laughs> all that's probably incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> Randy, let's talk for a sec about why are corporations better for startups? We talked about tax regime, but talk about some of the other reasons which makes corporations a great fit for startups. Yeah. I mean, the beauty of the corporation is for a couple of things here, right? One is that the simplicity of it. You talked about the flexibility of an LLC, which is great. Corporations are more rigid. That structure has been around a lot longer and you have to jump through certain herbs, but it's pretty simple, right? You don't have the pass-through taxation issue we just talked about that creates more administrative headache. And also, when you look at all the docs, because corporations have been around for so long, all of the investment documentation has basically been crafted, NBCA, SeriesC.com, Y Combinator. Everyone's drafted their docs geared towards Delaware C Corporation. That entity's been around for a while, and there's a lot of case law in the state of Delaware that governs things such as fiduciary duties and a litany of other issues that investors and board members hold dear, that when they're trying to pick where they want to go, that structure, they don't have to go and think, oh, I'm going to be a Nevada entity, a Texas entity, an Illinois entity. Well, now we have to research, is this indemnification agreement proper under the laws here, right? Can I waive certain aspects of fiduciary data, et cetera, in these states? So the other nice thing about it is that all the documents that we talk about are kind of set up already for this specific entity in this specific jurisdiction which makes it, you can kind of go on autopilot a little bit, right? You make a really good point about the online docs. And I want to touch on that later on. This is you know one of the benefits of recutting this series because a lot of things didn't exist five years ago. We did this the first time. So again, we'll get into greater detail on the YC docs and the Series C and VCA docs later. But if you go look at all the standardized docs that are available to venture finance companies, they're all based on Delaware corporations. That's just it. There's no Texas ones. There's no California ones. There's no Florida ones. There's no LLC ones available because they're too complex. So I think that's a really great point. Another reason why your startup's going to want to be a Delaware corporation. Let's talk about those online formation docs while we're here. So this is new and you can get them from AngelList. You can get them from Clerky. You can get them from CatBase. Some of the um, online platforms have them. Actually, let's first let's talk with LegalZoom. Let's talk about LegalZoom and Rocket Lawyer, right? Someone might be listening to this, and let's just say they want to do an LLC. And they say, "Well, VW quoted me, you know, twenty five hundred, thirty five hundred bucks. Why don't I just go to Rocket Lawyer for eight hundred bucks and do it?" You know, what's your answer there? Yeah, you know, I asked those questions early on. I said, "Are you a sole founder? Right? Are you doing this by yourself? Is this a single member LLC?" If they say yes, right, and we go through a couple other questions, I oftentimes say, "Look." This isn't super complex. Why don't you go to Rocket Lawyer, Legal Inc., Legal Zoom, and just do it that way, right? As soon as you have more than one founder, especially in, a, in an LLC, you run a very real risk if you just go to Legal Inc. or Legal Zoom or any of these online platforms and you know and just click, yep, here's my info, spit it out because those organizational documents are just so boilerplate. You know, if there's any amount of desire to make up terms between the founders that are specific to them, you miss out on it. And there might be language in there, you know, especially if like a 50-50 split that's, you just kind of paralyze the company. It's going to happen, maybe some generic arbitration mediation language, but there's no tiebreaker language or stuff. So when you have two or more people, I tend to say, look, yeah, you could do it, but there's real risk here unless you have it tailored, right? With someone who knows what they're doing. 
I can get into that a little bit more when we go into like the, the corporate docs that we talked about too, for more like startups. I had a recent client call up and ask me this exact question, but I'd say for the LLC side of things, yeah, if you're a single member, if you're creating an entity to hold a piece of property and you are the only person that's going to own it, those websites are perfect for that. Just download it, spit it out. It doesn't really matter. You got your EIN, you got your COF, you're good to go. I'm the same. Single member for sure. Husband and wife. Yes. Totally fine. Or if you have like a 90-10 situation with like you know two people who know each other, maybe. But you're right, man. Once you get to two people, unless they're husband and wife, I'm most likely saying you're going to need some customization here because you're not going to really need these docs until there's a problem. And then these docs aren't going to cover it. Dispute resolution, like you mentioned, Randy. What happens if there's a buyout situation? What happens if someone dies? What happens if there's a bankruptcy or a divorce, right? None of these things are generally covered in the standard docs. And this is why going to an attorney would be valuable in those multi-member LLC type situations. So now let's talk about corporations. So this is the big one. Like over the last five years, this stuff has all really evolved. We get a lot of companies coming to us that have already done their docs online. So what are you seeing when clients come to you, Radney, from Clerky or from AngelList with just those core docs versus what we would prepare for them? I often say this, right? I'd say that Clerky especially, those docs are good. They fit the mold, right? If you're looking at the docs that you need, when you're going to talk to venture investors and they want to see that you have your confidential information and venture assignment agreement, they want to see you have your restricted stock purchase agreements vesting, your 83Bs. Clerky does that, right? Their docs, their bylaws are pretty standard. They're, they're nothing out of the ordinary. Like you can get by with it. What I'll say is those who kind of already speak the venture language a bit, maybe they've started a company before, maybe they're very well read, maybe listen to this badass podcast that Vela Wood puts out. They are more likely to be able to probably go in and do those clerky docs and not have an issue. Those folks that are first-time founders, I've noticed multiple times, they just make mistakes. They put the wrong numbers in the wrong spots. They try to vest. They don't vest. They forget to file the 83B or they tell clerky to file the 83B, but then they didn't fill it out right. So it's not vesting correctly. And so you get all these little mistakes that obviously you've had an attorney doing it that knows it. It's it's second nature. But for them, this kind of looks a little Latin, which, which makes sense. So these docs out there, AngelList, Clerky, they're doing a good job, but it's almost like AI that's out there right now. How well you ask the question, how well you use the tool. You know, if you are an expert in your space, AI probably is incredibly helpful. If you don't know anything about the space, just asking ChatGPT how to fix the thing or do the thing probably isn't as helpful, right? And so that these tools are, you know, they're not AI by any means. They're just, you know, filled in docs, but that's kind of the thing here. If you don't really know what you're doing, there, there's still room for error. And that's kind of happened just recently with a recent client. Yeah, I'm seeing the same thing. I think for the experienced founder, they're fantastic. Or if you're going through a Y Combinator type accelerator, tech stars, that they could just send you there and guide you through it. But I've had a couple instances recently where I told someone about them. They said, well, I'd like to try it out. I said, all right, tell you what, why don't you go try it out and then just send the docs to us and we'll just charge you an hour or two to review them. And that theoretically should save you more money than had you just come to us initially. The problem is, and I've, I've got myself in this issue, Rad, is they send them to them and say, guys, these are all messed up. And now we got to do it. It's going to take longer to fix them than had we just drafted them initially. And I've kind of already worked myself into a hole because I said, oh, we'll just, you know, this will only take us an hour or two. And so this is an, an awkward conversation. So now I'm back to just have the conversation with the new client when they're coming on. If they know what they're talking about, then sure, go use it. But if not, then you know what? We need to do it ourselves or else we're just going to charge you full fare to clean up whatever you mess up. I'll also note that the way that LLCs, if you're two people or more, you got to go custom. You need to hire an attorney. If there's anything nuanced about your startup, 
then those are not going to work. If you guys have different vesting schedules, right? If not everyone's vesting the same, if someone's going to be milestone-based vested versus time-based vesting, not going to work. If someone's trying to keep a piece of the IP or they want the IP rights to revert back to them in the event that the company fails. Like you'll see that every once in a while, right? Someone says, I got this awesome piece of IP. I'm going to contribute it. But if the company doesn't work within the first two years, first year, I want the IP back. That's very difficult to do if you're not engaging an attorney. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking about using one of the online resources, if you have anything off the beaten path, if you're not just doing standard vesting, which we'll talk about in a couple episodes, if you're not just doing standard IP assignments, using standard bylaws, standard cap table setup, then you're probably going to want something custom. But I think those sites can be, when used appropriately, those sites are great. They're really great. And I don't have a problem with clients going Yeah, to totally agree. Totally agree. Okay, Rad. So next episode, we're going to talk a little bit about founders agreements. So I don't really want to get in the weeds there. But let's just talk about anything else. You know, Is there anything else we haven't covered yet that we want people thinking about as they're trying to decide between an LLC? Oh, I've got one for you, actually. Where should they incorporate or organize? Yeah, that's a great point. To go back to what we said earlier, if you're looking to raise money, you think you're going to be venture-backed or you want that possibility to be open, and you're talk, then I'd say you're a Delaware C-Corp, right? And you incorporate there, and then you register in the state where you're located. If we go through that analysis, and it turns out you're an LLC because you're a lifestyle business, you're a services company, you're a bar restaurant, you just incorporate in the state, register in the state where you're located, right? There's no point in having double taxation. You know, we do a lot of fund formation and fund work. Those funds will be LPs and the management entity will be LLCs. And that's all based in Delaware typically. And then we register in the states that are located. But that's the only kind of exception. If you're doing those pass-through entities, you typically just want to be in the state where you're located. It makes the most sense. Yeah, I'm with you. And just to provide some clarity in case anyone's wondering why, a lot of times those funds are organized in Delaware because you have investors or limited partners or members from all over the country. And everyone's just comfortable with Delaware laws, Delaware being the base. If we're going to do a restaurant in Texas, then we're going to want a Texas entity because if we were in Delaware, we would then have to foreign qualify in Texas. And that means that we have to now, like Brad said, we have to be registered in two states or paying two state franchise taxes. Now, most startups eventually are going to need to foreign qualify wherever their headquarters are. And that could be within six months. That could be within 12 months. It's just kind of dependent on the facts and circumstances around that startup. So I don't want you to think that if you organize your Delaware startup that you're never going to have to register anywhere else. That's just not true. But what most companies do is they get going in Delaware, get some traction. As we talked about, they're just losing money. They're just burning cash for a while. Then after six months, after 12 months, you visit with an attorney. When the time's appropriate, you then foreign qualify your entity in your home state. Really, anytime before you go get funding, the investor will require you to do it because it's just the right thing to do. But you don't necessarily have to do it on day one. So, yeah, so if you're going to file in, in Texas, you're going to file, you know, if you're a small business you're gonna, and we're in Texas, we'll file in Texas. Otherwise, you, you'll be in Delaware. I'm going to take this opportunity just to point out one thing about the naming conventions, because if you're listening to this in Wyoming and you go look at, say, you want to file your LLC, they might call this, I don't know what they call it in Wyoming. I think it's Articles of, of Organization. If you're in Texas, they would call this Certificate of Formation. If you're in Delaware, they would call your LLC filing a Certificate of Formation, but they'd call your corporation filing a Certificate of Incorporation. But in Texas, they'd call your incorporation filing a Certificate of, of Formation. So it's different, but there's kind of a catch-all. People will just call it Charter or state filing. So if you're ever confused about that point, just know that charter is a catch-all word for whatever document you filed in your home state to organize your entity. 
Okay, well, the last thing that we should touch on, Rad, is what are your standard sets of docs? Now, remember, next week, Rad, we're going to get into Founders Docs, so we'll dive into RSPAs and IP assignments, but why don't you just walk through what the standard Delaware filing is going to look like, Rad? Sure. The standard Delaware filing involves your charter that we just talked about, you know, articles, certificate of incorporation. On that document, if you're going the standard venture-backed route, we typically recommend because it's what you see, 10 million shares, right? You, you're going to have to have that share count listed on your charter, 10 million shares, par value 0.0001 or maybe four zeros for some people like. Then you have a few other documents that are required, right? You have your action by the incorporator, which really just does one thing, which is appoint the board of directors. And then the board of directors will have an action by written consent in lieu of a meeting that is your original resolution that adopts the bylaws, determines the issuance of equity to who and what that vesting schedule is and some of these basic initial company actions. And then, as you point out, Kev, there are the restricted stock agreements and IP assignments. And that's kind of your initial set of docs. All right. We'll dive into more of those next week. So with that, you can find show notes for this episode with links to the references and resources on our website, velawood forward slash podcast. We have several other podcasts you may be interested in, including our newest podcast, Laws of the Game, which is all about the history, operation, and organization of soccer worldwide. Please follow us. You can find the Office Hours podcast on Apple and Spotify. We'd love it if you could give us a follow and leave a rating review. Email us. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at podcast at bellawood.com. And finally, thanks for listening. See you next time. See ya. The Vela Wood podcasts are recorded with the help of Radio MD, based in Chicago, Illinois. You can find all of our podcasts on our website at velawood.com slash podcasts. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at velawood.com.